Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Chapter 2 Raymond de Marol shows himself better than all Bow Street. And so, Monsieur de Marol, said the Marquis, as Raymond closed the door on the group in the hall and the two gentlemen were left entirely alone, and so you have, by what means I shall certainly, not so far inconvenience myself as to endeavor to guess, contrive to become informed of some of the antecedents of your very humble servant. Of some of the antecedents, why not say of all the antecedents, Monsieur de Savenne? "'Just as you like, my dear young friend,' replies the Marquis. "'He really seems to get quite affectionate to Raymond, "'but in a far-off, patronizing, and superb manner. "'And having possessed yourself of this information, "'may I ask what use you intend making of it? "'In this utilitarian age, everything is put to a use, sooner or later. "'Do you propose writing my biography? "'It will not be interesting, not as you would have to write it today.' "'Alas, we are not so fortunate as to live under the Regency, "'and there are not many interesting biographies nowadays. "'My dear Marquis, I really have no time to listen to what I have no doubt "'amongst your own particular friends is considered most brilliant wit. "'I have two or three things to say to you that must be said, "'and the sort of people who are now waiting outside the door are apt to be impatient.' "'Ah, you are experienced. "'You know their manners and customs. "'And they are impatient,' murmured the Marquis thoughtfully. "'And they put you in stone places as if you were coal, "'and behind bars as if you were zoological. "'And then they hang you. "'They call you up at an absurd hour in the morning, "'and they take you out into a high place "'and drop you down through a hole "'as if you were a penny put into a savings box. "'And other people get up at an equally absurd hour of the morning.' or stay up all night, in order to see it done. And yet, there are persons who declare that the age of romance has passed away. Monsieur de Savenne, that which I have to say to you relates to your marriage. My marriage? Suppose I say that I never was married, my amiable friend. I shall then reply, Monsieur, that I not only am informed of all the circumstances of your marriage, but what is more, I am possessed of a proof of that marriage. Supposing there were such a marriage, which I am prepared to deny, there could only be two proofs, the witnesses and the certificate. The witnesses, monsieur, are dead, said Raymond. Then that would reduce the possible proofs to one, the certificate. Nay, monsieur, there might be another evidence of the marriage. And that would be, the issue of it. You had two sons by that marriage, monsieur. One of those sons died eight years ago. And the other? asked the Marquis. 
still lives. I shall have something to say about him by and by. It is a subject in which I take no sort of interest, said the Marquis, throwing himself back into his chair and abandoning himself once more to Mark Antony. I may have been married, or I may not have been married. It is not worth my while to deny that fact to you, because if I confess it to you, I can, of course, deny it the moment I cross the threshold of that door. I may have sons, or I may not have sons. In either case, I have no wish to hear of them, and anything you may have to say about them is, it appears to me, quite irrelevant to the matter in hand, which merely is you're going to prison for forgery, or you're not going to prison for forgery. But what I most earnestly recommend, my very dear young friend, is that you take the cab and handcuffs quietly, and go. That will, at least, put an end to fuss and discussion. And, oh, what an inexpressible relief there is in that. I always envy Noah, floundering about in that big boat of his. No new books, no houses of parliament, no poor relations, and no taxes. Universal, as you were, as Mr. Carlyle says. Plenty to eat, and everything come to an end. And that foolish Noah must needs send out the dove, and begin it all over again. Yes, he began it all over again, that preposterous Noah. Whereby, cab, handcuffs, forgery, long conversation, and police persons outside that door, all of which might have been prevented if Noah had kept the dove indoors and had been unselfish enough to bore a hole in the bottom of his boat. If you would listen to me, Monsieur le Marquis, and keep your philosophical reflections for a more convenient season, there will be some chance of our coming to an understanding. One of these twin sons still lives. Now, really, that is the old ground again. We are not getting on. Still lives, I say. Whatever he is, Monsieur de Savenne, whatever his checkered life may have been, the guilt and the misery of that life rest alike on your head. The Marquis gives the head alluded to an almost imperceptible jerk, as if he threw this moral burden off, and looks relieved by the proceeding. "'Don't be melodramatic,' he remarks mildly. "'This is not the Port St. Martin, "'and there are no citizens in the gallery to applaud. "'That guilt and that misery, I say, rest upon your head. "'When you married the woman whom you abandoned "'to starvation and despair, you loved her, I suppose.' "'I dare say I did,' "'I have no doubt I told her so, poor little thing. "'And a few months after your marriage you wearied of her, "'as you would have done of any other plaything. "'As I should have done of any other plaything. "'Poor dear child, she was dreadfully wearisome. "'Her relations, too. "'Heaven and earth, what relations. "'They were looked upon in the light of human beings at Slopperton, "'but they were wise to keep out of Paris, "'for they would have been most decidedly put in the Jardin de Plantes. "'And really,' said the Marquis thoughtfully, "'behind bars. "'You were quite content that this unhappy girl "'should share your poverty, Monsieur le Marquis, "'but in the hour of your good fortune... "'I left her, decidedly. "'Look you, Monsieur de Morol, "'when I married that young person "'whom you insist on dragging out of her grave, "'poor girl, she is dead no doubt by this time, "'in this remarkably melodramatic manner,' I was a young man, without a penny in the world, and with very slight expectations 
of ever becoming possessed of one. I am figurative, of course. I believe men of my temperament and complexion are not very subject to that popular epidemic called love. But as much as it was in my power to love anyone, I loved this little factory girl. I used to meet her going backwards and forwards to her work as I went backwards and forwards to mine. And we became acquainted. She was gentle, innocent, pretty. I was very young, and I need scarcely say extremely stupid, and I married her. We had not been married six months before that dreadful Corsican person took it into his head to abdicate, and I was summoned back to France to make my appearance at the Tuileries as Marquis de Seven. Now, what I have to say is this. If you wish to quarrel with anyone, quarrel with the Corsican person. For if he had never signed his abdication at Fontainebleau, which he did, by the by, in a most melodramatic manner, I am acquainted with some weak-minded people who cannot read the description of that event without shedding tears, I should never have deserted my poor little English wife. The Marquis de Seven could not, then, ratify the marriage of the obscure teacher of French and mathematics, asked Raymond. If the Marquis de Seven had been a rich man, he might have done so, but the restoration which gave me back my title and the only chateau, my ancestors had three, which the Jacobins had not burned to the ground, did not restore me the fortune which the revolution had devoured. I was a poor man. Only one course was open to me, a rich marriage. The wealthy widow of a Bonapartiste general beheld and admired your humble servant, and the doom of my poor little wife was sealed. For many years I sent money regularly to her old mother, an awful woman who knew my secret. She had, therefore, no occasion to starve, Monsieur de Morol. And now, may I be permitted to ask what interest you have in this affair, that you should insist on recalling these very disagreeable circumstances at this particular moment? There is one question you do not ask, Monsieur le Marquis. Indeed, and what is that? asked the Marquis. You seem to have very little curiosity about the fate of your surviving son. I seem to have very little curiosity, my young friend. I have very little curiosity. I dare say he is a very worthy individual, but I have no anxiety whatever about his fate. For, if he at all resembles his father, there is very little doubt that he has taken every care of himself. The de Savens have always taken care of themselves. It is a family trait. He has proved himself worthy of that family, then. He was thrown into a river, but he did not sink. He was put into a workhouse and brought up as a pauper, but by the force of his own will and the help of his own brain, he extricated himself and won his way in the world. He became what his father was before him, a teacher in a school. He grew tired of that, as his father did, and left England for Paris. In Paris, like his father before him, he married a woman he did not love for the sake of her fortune. He became master of that fortune, until this very day he has surmounted every obstacle and triumphed over every difficulty. Your only son, Monsieur de Seven, the son whose mother you deserted, the son whom you abandoned, to starve, steal, drown, or hang, to beg in the streets, die in a gutter, a workhouse, or a prison, has lived through all, to stand face to face with you this day, and to tell you 
that for his own and for his mother's wrongs, with all the strength of a soul which those wrongs have steeped in wickedness, he hates you. Don't be violent, said the Marquis gently. So you are my son. Upon my word, I thought all along you were something of that kind, for you are such a consummate villain. For the first time in his life, Raymond de Merol feels what it is to be beaten by his own weapons. Against the Marquis, the torrent of his passionate words dashes, as the sea dashes at the foot of a rock, and makes as little impression. "'And what then?' says the Marquis. "'Since it appears you are my son, what then?' "'You must save me, monsieur,' said Raymond in a hoarse voice. "'Save you? But, my worthy friend, how save you? "'Save you from the cab and handcuffs?' If I go out to those people and say, He is my son, be so good as to forego the cab and handcuffs, they will laugh at me. They are so dreadfully matter-of-fact, that sort of people. What is to be done? Only this, monsieur. I must make my escape from this apartment. That window looks into the garden, from the garden to the mews, through the mews into a retired street, and thence... Never mind that, if you get there... "'I really doubt the possibility of your getting there. "'There's a policeman watching in that garden.' "'Raymond smiles. "'He is recovering his presence of mind "'and the necessity for action. "'He opens a drawer on the library table "'and takes out an air pistol, "'which looks rather like some elegant toy "'than a deadly weapon. "'I must shoot that man,' he says. "'Then I give the alarm. "'I will not be implicated in a murder. "'Good heavens!' The Marquis de Savennes implicated in a murder, why it will be talked of in Paris for a month. There will be no murder, monsieur. I shall fire at that man from this window and hit him in the knee. He will fall and most likely faint from the pain, and will not, therefore, know whether I pass through the garden or not. You will give the alarm and tell the men without that I have escaped through this window and the door in the wall yonder. They will pursue me in that direction while I... You will do what? Go out the front door, as a gentleman should. I was not unprepared for such an event as this. Every room in this house has a secret communication with the next room. There is only one door in this library, as it seems, and they are carefully watching that. As he speaks, he softly opens the window and fires at the man in the garden, who falls, only uttering a groan. As Raymond predicted, he faints with the pain. With the rapidity of lightning, he flings the window up violently, hurls the pistol to the farthest extremity of the garden, snatches the Marquis's hat from the chair on which it lies, presses one finger on the gilded back of a volume of Gibbon's Rome, a narrow slip of the bookcase opens inwards and reveals a door leading into the next apartment, which is the dining room. This door is made on a peculiar principle, and, as he pushes through, it closes behind him. This is the work of a second, and as the officers, alarmed by the sound of the opening of the window, rush into the room, the Marquis gives the alarm. He has escaped by the window, he said. He has wounded your assistant and passed through that door. He cannot be twenty yards in advance. You will easily know him by his having no hat on. Stop, cries the detective officer. This may be a trap. He may have got round to the front door. Go and watch, Johnson. A little too late, this precaution. 
As the officers rushed into the library, Raymond passed from the dining-room door out of the open street door and jumped into the very cab which was waiting to take him to prison. Five pounds if you catch the Liverpool Express,' he said to the cabman. "'All right, sir,' replied that worthy citizen with a wink. "'I've drove many a gents like you, and very good fares they is too, "'and a godsend to a hard-working man. "'What old ladies with handbags and umbrella grudges eight pence a mile to,' "'mutters the charioteer as he gallops down Upper Brook Street "'and across Hanover Square, "'while the gentlemen of the police force, "'aided by Dr. Tappenden and the obliging Marquis, "'search the mews and neighborhood adjoining.' Strange to say, they cannot obtain any information from the coachman and stable boys concerning a gentleman without a hat who must have passed through the mews about three minutes before. Chapter 3 The Left-Handed Smasher Makes His Mark It is a palpable and humiliating proof of the decadence of the glories of White Albion and her lion-hearted children, said the sporting correspondent of the Liverpool Bold Speaker, a gentleman who, by the by, was very clever at naming, for half a dozen stamps, the horses that didn't win, nothing being better policy than to give the odds against any horse named by him as a sure winner, or a safe second. For those steeds were sure to be, whatever the fluctuating fortune of the race, nowhere. It is, continued the Liverpool B.S., a sign of the downfalling of the lion and unicorn, over which Britannia may shed tears and the inhabitants of Liverpool and its vicinity mourn in silent despair, that the freedom of England is no more. We repeat, Britain is no longer free. Her freedom departed from her on that day on which the blue-coated British Sibiri of Sir Robert Peel broke simultaneously into the liberties of the nation, the mightiest clauses of Magna Carta and the prize ring, and stopped the operations of the Lancashire Daddy Longlegs and the celebrated metropolitan favorite, the left-handed smasher, during the 89th round, and just as the real interest of the fight was about to begin. Under these humiliating circumstances, a meeting has been held by the referees and backers of the men, and it has been agreed between the latter and the stakeholder to draw the money, but that the valiant and admired smasher may have no occasion to complain of the town of Liverpool, the patrons of the fancy have determined on giving him a dinner, at which his late opponent, our old favorite and honored townsman, Daddy Longlegs, will be in the chair, having a distinguished gentleman of sporting celebrity as his vice. It is to be hoped that, as some proof that the noble art of self-defense is not entirely extinct in Liverpool, the friends of the ring will muster pretty strong on this occasion. Tickets at half a guinea to be obtained at the Gloves Tavern, where the entertainment will take place. On the very day on which the Count de Marolle left his establishment in Park Lane in so very abrupt a manner, the tributary banquet to the genius of the ring in the person of the left-handed smasher came off in excellent style at the above-mentioned Gloves Tavern, a small hostelry next door to one of the Liverpool minor theatres. The dramatic element, perhaps rather predominated in the small parlour behind the bar, where Brandolph of the Burning Brand, after fighting sixteen terrific broadsword combats and being left for dead behind the first grooves seven times in the course of three acts, 
would take his Welsh rarebit and his pint of half and half, in company with the Lancashire grinder and the pottery pet, and listen with due solemnity to the discourse of these two popular characters. The little parlor was so thickly hung with portraits of theatrical and sporting celebrities that Oedipus himself, distinguished as he is for having guessed the dullest of conundrums, could never have discovered the pattern of the paper which adorned the walls. Here, Mr. Montmorency, the celebrated comedian, smirked, with that mild smirk only known in portraits over the ample shoulders of his very much better half at the pet in fighting attitude. There, Mr. Marmaduke Montressor, the great tragedian, frowned in the character of Richard III, winner of the last derby. Here again, Mademoiselle Pastebosque pointed her satin slipper side by side with the youthful Shaloner of that day, and opposite Mademoiselle Pastebosque, a gentleman in scarlet, whose name is unknown, tumbled off a burnt sienna horse in excellent condition and a very high state of varnish into a Prussian blue ditch, thereby filling the spectator with apprehension lest he should be not drowned but died. As to Brandolph of the brand, there are so many pictures of him in so many different attitudes, and he was always looking so very handsome and doing something so very magnanimous that perhaps, upon the whole, it was rather a disappointment to look from the pictures down to the original of them in the dingy costume of private life, seated at the shiny little mahogany table, partaking of refreshment. The theatrical profession mustered pretty strongly to do honor to the sister art on this particular occasion. The theater next door to the gloves happened, fortunately, to be closed, on account of the extensive scale of preparations for a grand dramatic and spectacular performance entitled The Sikh Victories, or The Tyrant of the Ganges, which was to be brought out the ensuing Monday, with even more than usual magnificence. So the votaries of Thespis were free to testify their admiration for the noble science of self-defense by taking tickets for the dinner at ten and sixpence apiece, the banquet being, as Mr. Montressor, the comedian above mentioned, remarked with more energy than elegance, a cheap blowout, as the dinner would last the guests who partook of it two days, and the indigestion attendant thereon would carry them through the rest of the week. I shall not enter into the details of the dinner, but will introduce the reader into the banquet hall at rather a late stage in the proceedings. In point of fact, just as the festival is about to break up, it is two o'clock in the morning, the table is strewn with the debris of a dessert, in which figs, almonds and raisins, mixed biscuits, grape stalks, and apple and orange peel seem rather to predominate. The table is a very field of Cressy or Waterloo, as to dead men in the way of empty bottles, good execution having evidently been done upon Mr. Hemmer's well-stocked cellar. From the tumblers and spoons before each guest, however, it is also evident that the festive throng has followed the example of Mr. Salah's renowned hero, and after having tried a variety of foreign drains, has gone back to gin and water, simple. It is rather a peculiar and paradoxical quality of neat wines, that they have, if anything, rather an untidy effect on those who drink them. Certainly there is a looseness about the hair, a thickness and indecision in the speech, and an erratic and irrelevant energy, an emphasis in the gestures of the friends of the smasher, 
which is entirely at variance with our ordinary idea of the word neat. Yet, why should we quarrel with them on that account? They are harmless, and they are happy. It is surely no crime to see two gas burners, where, to the normal eye, there is only one. Neither is it criminal to try five distinct times to enunciate the two words, slightest misunderstanding, and to fail every time. If anything, there must be an amiable feeling which inspires a person with a sudden wild and almost pathetic friendship for a man he never saw before. Such a friendship, in short, as pants to go to the block for him, or to become his surety to a loan office for five pounds. Is it any such terrible offense against society to begin a speech of a patriotic nature, full of allusions to John Bull, Queen Victoria, wooden walls, and the prize ring, and to burst into tears in the middle thereof? Is there no benevolence in the wish to see your friend home, on account of your strong impression that he has taken a little too much, and that he will tumble against the railings and impale his chin upon the spikes? Which, of course, you are in no danger of doing. Are these things crimes? No, we answer boldly no. Then hurrah for neat wines and free trade. Open wide our harbors to the purple grapes that flourish in the vineyards of sunny Burgundy and Bordeaux. And welcome, thrice welcome, to the blushing tides which Horace sang so many hundred years ago, when our beautiful earth was younger, and maybe fairer, and held its course, though it's hard to believe it, very well indeed, without the genius of modern civilization at the helm. There had been a silver cup with one of the labors of Hercules. Poor Hercules, how hard they work him in the sporting world. Embossed thereon, presented to the smasher, as a tribute of respect for those British qualities which had endeared him to his admirers. And the smasher's health had been drunk with three times three, and a little one in, and then three more three times three, and another little one in. And the smasher had returned thanks, and Brandolph of the brand had proposed the daddy long legs. And the Daddy Longlegs had made a very neat speech in the Lancashire dialect, which the gentleman of the theatrical profession had pretended to understand, but had not understood, and a literary individual being, in fact, the gentleman whose spirited writing we have quoted above, Mr. Geoffrey Hallam Jones, sporting and theatrical correspondent, and constant visitor at the gloves, had proposed the ring, and the smasher had proposed the press, for the liberties of which as he said in noble language afterwards, quoted, the gentlemen of the prize ring were prepared to fight as long as they had a bunch of fives to rattle upon the knowledge box of the foe. And then the Daddy Longlegs had proposed the stage, and its greatest glory, brand off of the brand. And ultimately, everybody had proposed everybody else, and then someone suggesting a quiet song, everybody sang. Now, as the demand for a song from each member of the festive band was of so noisy and imperative a nature that a refusal was not only a moral but a physical impossibility, it would be unbecoming to remark that the melody and harmony of the evening were, at best, fluctuating. Annie Laurie was evidently a young lady of an undecided mind and wandered into a pleasing manner from C into D and from D into E, and then back again with laudable dexterity to see for the finish. The gentleman, whose heart was bowed down in the key of G, might have rendered his performance more effective had he given a statement of that affliction entirely in one key, 
and another gentleman who sang a comic song of seventeen eight-line verses with four lines of chorus to every verse would have done better if he had confined himself to his original plan of singing superhumanly flat instead of varying it as he occasionally did by singing preternaturally sharp. Of course, it is an understood thing that in a chorus every singer should choose his own key or where is the liberty of the subject? So that need not be alluded to. But all this is over, and the guests of Mr. Hemmer have risen to depart, and have found the act of rising to depart by no means the trifle they thought it. It is very hard, of course, in such an atmosphere of tobacco, to find the door, and that, no doubt, is the reason why so many gentlemen seek for it in the wrong direction, and buffet insanely with their arms against the wall in search of that orifice. Now, there are two gentlemen in whom Mr. Hemmer's neat wines have developed a friendship of the warmest description. Those two gentlemen are none other than the two master spirits of the evening, the left-handed smasher and Brandolph of the Brand, who, by the by, in private life, is known as Augustus de Clifford. His name is not written thus in the register of his baptism. On that malicious document, he is described as William Watson, but to his friends and the public he has for fifteen years been admired and beloved as the great de Clifford, although often familiarly called Brandolph, in delicate allusion to his greatest character. Now, Brandolph is positively convinced that the smasher is not in a fit state to go home alone, and the smasher is equally assured that Brandolph will do himself a mischief unless he is watched. So Brandolph is going to see the smasher home to his hotel which is a considerable distance from the Gloves Tavern, and then the Smasher is coming back again to see Brandolph to his lodgings, which are next door but two to the Gloves Tavern. So after having bade good night to everyone else, in some instances with tears, and always with an affectionate pathos verging upon tears, Brandolph flings on his loose overcoat, just as Manfred might have flung on his cloak prior to making a morning call upon the Witch of the Alps, and the smasher twists about five yards, which he calls a comforter, around his neck, and they sally forth. A glorious autumn night, the full moon high in the heaven, with a tiny star following in her wake like a well-bred tuft-hunter, and all the other stars keeping their distance, as if they had retired to their own grounds, as the French say, and were at variance with their queen on some matter connected with taxes. A glorious night, as light as day, nay, almost lighter, for it is a light which will bear looking at, and which does not dazzle our eyes as the sun does. Not a speck on the Liverpool pavement, not a dog asleep on the doorstep, or a dissipated cat sneaking home down an area, but is as visible as in the broad glare of noon. Such a night as this was almost too much for Laura, and Brandolph of the brand grows sentimental, "'You wouldn't think,' he murmurs, abstractedly, "'gazing at the moon, as he and the smasher "'meander arm in arm over the pavement. "'You wouldn't think she had an atmosphere, would you? "'A man might build a theatre there, "'and he might get his company up in balloons. "'But I question if it would pay, "'on account of that trivial want. "'She hasn't got an atmosphere.' "'Hasn't she?' said the smasher, who certainly, if anything, had in the matter of sobriety the advantage of the tragedian. 
"'You'll have a black eye, though, "'if you don't steer clear of that ear lamp-post you're making for. "'I never did see such a cove,' he added, "'with his atmosphere and his moons and his moons. "'One would think he'd never had a glass or two of wine before.' Now to reach the hotel which the left-handed one honored by his presence, it was necessary to pass the quay, and the sight of the water and the shipping reposing in the stillness under the light of the moon again awakened all the poetry in the nature of the romantic Brandolph. It is beautiful, he said, taking his pet position, and waving his arm in the orthodox circle prior to pointing to the scene before him. It is peaceful, it is we who are the blots upon the beauty of the earth. Oh, why? Why are we false to the beautiful and heroic, as the author of The Lady of Lions would observe? Why are we false to the true? Why do we drink too much and see double, standing amidst the supreme silences, with breathless creation listening to our words? We look up to the stars that look down upon the philosopher of the cave, and we feel that we have retrograded. Here the eminent tragedian gave a lurch and seated himself with some violence and precipitation on the curbstone. We feel, he repeated, that we have retrograded. It is a pity. Now who's to pick him up, inquired the smasher, looking round in silent appeal to the lampposts about him. Who's to pick him up? I can't. And if he sleeps here, he'll very likely get cold. Get up, you sniveling fool, can't you? he said with some asperity to the descendant of Thespis, who, after weeping piteously, was drying his eyes with an announce bill of the tyrant of the Ganges, and by no means improving his personal appearance with the red and black printer's ink thereof. How mine host of the cheerful Cherokee would ever have extricated his companion from this degraded position without the timely intervention of others is not to be said, for at this very moment the smasher beheld a gentleman alight from a cab at a little distance from where he stood, ask two or three questions of the cabman, pay and dismiss him, and then walk on in the direction of some steps that led to the water. This gentleman wore his hat very much slouched over his face. He was wrapped in a heavy loose coat that entirely concealed his figure and evidently carried a parcel of some kind under his left arm. "'Hi,' said the smasher, "'as the pedestrian approached. "'Hi, you there. Give us a hand, will you?' "'The gentleman addressed as you there "'took not the slightest notice of this appeal, "'except, indeed, that he quickened his pace considerably "'and tried to pass the left-handed one. "'No, you don't,' said our friend. "'The cove as refuses to pick up the man that's down "'is a blot upon the English character, "'and the sooner he's scratched out the better.' wherewith the smasher squared his fists and placed himself directly in the path of the gentleman with the slouched hat. "'I tell you, what is it, my good fellow?' said this individual. "'You may pick up your drunken friend yourself, "'or you may wait the advent of the next policeman, "'who will do the public a service by conveying you both to the station-house, "'where you may finish the evening in your own highly intellectual manner. "'But perhaps you'll be good enough to let me pass, for I'm in a hurry.' "'You see that American vessel yonder? "'She's dropped down the river to wait for the wind. "'The breeze is springing up as fast as it can, "'and she may set sail as it is before I can reach her. "'So if you want to earn a sovereign, "'come and see if you can get me in arousing a waterman "'and getting off to her.' "'Oh, you are off to America, are you?' "'said the smasher thoughtfully. "'Blow that air wine of Hemmer's. 
"'I ought to know the cut of your figurehead. "'I've seen you before. "'I've seen you somewheres before. "'Though where that somewheres was. "'Come, lend me a hand with this here friend of mine, "'and I'll lend you a hand with the boatman.' "'Damn your friend,' said the other savagely. "'Let me pass, will you, you drunken fool?' "'This was quite enough for the smasher.' who was just in that agreeable frame of mind attendant on the consumption of strong waters, in which the jaundiced eye is apt to behold an enemy, even in a friend, and the equally prejudiced ear is ready to hear an insult in the most civil address. "'Come on, then,' said he, and putting himself in a scientific attitude, he dodged from side to side two or three times, and then, with a movement rapid as lightning, went in with his left fist and planted a species of postman's knock exactly between the eyes of the stranger, who fell to the ground as an ox falls under the hand of an accomplished butcher. It is needless to say that, in falling, his hat fell off, and as he lay senseless on the pavement, the moonlight on his face revealed every feature as distinctly as in the broadest day. The smasher knelt down by his side, looked at him attentively for a few moments, and then gave a long, low whistle. "'Under the circumstances,' he said, "'perhaps I couldn't have done a better thing "'than this air I've done promiscuous. "'He won't go to America by that vessel at any rate. "'So if I telegraph to the Cherokees, "'maybe they will be glad to hear "'what he's been up to down here.' "'Come along,' continued the sobered smasher, "'hauling up Mr. De Clifford by the collar, "'as ruthlessly as if he had been a sack of coal. "'I think I hear the footsteps of a bobby "'a-coming this way.' "'so we better make ourselves scarce "'before we're asked any questions.' "'If,' said the distinguished Brandolph, "'still shedding tears, "'if the town of Liverpool was conducted "'after the manner of the Republic of Plato, "'there wouldn't be any policemen. "'But, as I said before, we have retrograded. "'Take care of the posts,' he added plaintively. "'It is marvellous the effect a few glasses of light wine "'have upon some people's legs, "'while others, on the contrary,' Here he slid again to the ground, and this time eluded all the smasher's endeavors to pick him up. "'You'd better let me be,' he murmured. "'It is hard, but it is clean and comfortable. "'Bring me my boots and hot water at nine o'clock. "'I have an early rehearsal of the tyrant. "'Go home quietly, my dear friend, "'and don't take anything more to drink, "'for your head is evidently not a strong one. "'Good night.' "'Here's a situation,' said the smasher, "'I can't dance attendance on him any more, "'for I must run round to the telegraph office "'and see if it's open, "'that I may send Mr. Marwood word about this night's work. "'The Count de Marole is safe enough for a day or two, anyhow, "'for I have set a mark upon him "'that he won't rub off just yet, clever as he is.'" Support for this show comes from Fundrise. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise.com Fox. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at Fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.